Well, good morning. Welcome, everyone, to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich. I am the other of the co-lead pastors, and it is uh, great to be with you all this morning. I'm so thankful that you would be joining us. Those who are listening online, thank you for doing so as well. Um, as we begin, hopefully you, and when you arrived, you received a bulletin. Inside that bulletin is an inside, uh, there's like a blank space on the inside right there. And it is for you to use for jotting down notes, questions, verses, whatever you need to do to process this morning's teaching. If you're listening online, recommend you just grabbing a piece of paper to do the same. <clears throat> Today we are diving deeper into our 2017 Advent sermon series called You're Invited into Waiting, Gathering, and Incarnation. And the idea behind this series has been to challenge us to remember, to rethink, and to respond to the real meaning of this season called Advent. To be invited into the very countercultural heart of this time in the church calendar and to live into this time of year with purposeful intentionality. Contrary to what our culture says right now, we are in a, a, a waiting pattern. Christmas has not arrived yet. We are waiting the arrival. And so how do we enter into this season when everything else around us is going about it differently? Greg launched the series off looking at the idea of waiting and the many ways we see waiting in the birth of Christ narrative and throughout scripture. And he shared how uncomfortable waiting can be and how typically we want to do whatever we can to avoid it. But it's in the quietness of these times of waiting where we make space in our hearts for Jesus. We give him room to show up in our lives no matter what's going on in the moment. Ever since that sermon, I've been far more aware of all those times that I am spending waiting, be it in traffic, waiting for my kids to get out of school, um, at the grocery store for soccer practices to end, for my coffee to finish brewing for the love of God, uh, waiting for a package to arrive, um, and I don't know about you, I've been trying to do his challenge, which is in those times of waiting not to easily go to my phone. It hasn't been easy, um, and I definitely haven't been super successful, but when I have, it's been super powerful. Why? Well, because waiting is the opposite of our world's way of doing pretty much anything these days. We hate to wait. And what we saw and what we learned is that waiting is restorative, it's transformational, because it helps us remember a core truth, and that is that we can't do this life on our own. And we need to slow down to remember that. We need a relationship with Christ, and the act of waiting helps us to put our trust in something other than ourselves. It helps us exercise our faith. That because of Christmas and the birth of Jesus, we are no longer alone God has come to make all things new. Then last week, Kylie Hale invited us to explore and apply this idea of gathering, and she did a fantastic job with it. In it, we saw lots of examples of gathering, like the great company of heavenly hosts and the angel coming to earth to gather around Jesus. There were the group of shepherds that came to see the Messiah, and then there were the wise men who came and presented gifts to Jesus. They all came from near and far because they wanted to be physically close to Jesus, to gather in his presence no matter the lengths they had to travel. They all came in groups. No one visited by themselves. 
not even the angel. And all of these gatherings included some form of worship. And so with that, Kylie invited us to think of tangible ways that we can intentionally gather together to invite others in to be in community and to share our gifts with one another. Now, if you missed either of those in our series, I highly recommend you going back and checking them out. They were both fantastic. Um, as we continue in our series today, before we dive in to our today's uh, invitation, I think it would be great for us just to pause again as we are gathered together to pray. So let's do that. Father, Son, Spirit, as we are here in your midst, gathered together, we've spent time in worship, we've spent time in prayer, we've spent time uh, enjoying the blessings of uh, the kids and the family and friends. We've taken time to remember you in your body, communion. We ask that you would be with us. Help us to understand what it is to live incarnationally. What does that mean? And help us to know what that looks like in our day-to-day life. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are discussing what I think is the most um, important and most accurately um, describing word for us for this season. And the word is not Santa, and the word is not gifts. The word is definitely not nasty eggnog. It's not hope. It's not peace. It's not joy. It's not goodwill. The word that best describes this season, in my opinion, is this word incarnation. And the word incarnation comes from John chapter 1, verse 14, in which it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, at the root of the word incarnation is the Latin word carno, which means flesh or meat. So, so think of the Spanish dish chili con carne, which means spicy stew with meat. From this root, we get the English words carnal, which means of the flesh, or carnivorous, which means uh, meat-eating, or carnage, which means the slaughter of flesh, or even the word carnation, which is meant to be understood as a color of skin. So the incarnation speaks of this carnal God, the God who is enfleshed in the very person of Jesus Christ. Literally, it's God con carne, or God with meat on. And so to say that Jesus was incarnated is to say that at a particular point in time, the God of the universe entered into our world and became a human being and took on flesh. Brian, our worship leader, even today, every week touches on this reality when he speaks of the fleshy act of Christ when we take communion. The bread is actually a symbol that reminds us each week of the incarnational, fleshy, present human act of God through the life of Jesus Christ, pursuing all humanity and giving his body for all as the ultimate example and gift of love. And this means that in Jesus, we have one who is both fully God and fully human. He's one who contains within himself two distinct and different natures that are not mixed. A nature that's fully divine, 100% God, and a second nature that's fully 100% human. 
The incarnation is God entering into the world in the person of Jesus, taking upon himself a human nature, possessing a physical body, now living in space and time just like we do with flesh and blood to be one of us so that we may know God and God may know us so that we might be reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, to be clear, this is an absolute mystery for sure. But scripture compels us to affirm this as utterly foundational to the Christian faith. Why? Well, now, because Jesus is both fully God and fully human, he can stand in the gap between a holy God and an unholy humanity and can bridge the great distance that exists between us and God. And so in the fullness of Jesus' divinity, we can, uh, he can bring God down to us on our level. And in the fullness of his humanity, he can lift us broken humans up into the presence of God so that we may know him. So Christmas is the celebration of the truth that the eternal holy God has become incarnate one of us taking on flesh, a human body, and purposefully and intentionally entering our world in the person of Jesus through this miraculous virgin birth from his earthly mother Mary so that we may know God truly and have a right relationship with him. Now, there is so many important implications for us and for humanity as a result of the incarnation. And there's absolutely no way I am going to be able to touch on all of them. So today, you guys get my top three implications of the incarnation. And again, if you want to write these down, that's fine. You're welcome to. Um, The first implication that comes from this is uh, that we now have to understand what it means to have a carnal God. Now, contrary to the idea that God would never lower himself on behalf of humanity, why would God do this? Jesus, the Son of God, as Scripture says, entered our world and took on human flesh in an actual human birth. Now, imagine divine seeds uniting within the womb, made up of bodily fluid and blood and curdled lump of flesh, which has to be fed for nine months of the same substances, placed in the womb of Mary, expanding daily, heavy, troubled, uneasy, even in sleep, torn between impulses of distaste and excessive hunger. Not to mention that Mary and Joseph had to find a place to stay. They didn't have anywhere to go. They had no hospitals. They had no doctors. They had no beds. None of the comforts we have today. I mean, if you think about it that way, This whole story seems definitely beneath God to do something like that. Why would anyone do that? It seems a bit much to believe that God, the holy creator and sustainer of the entire universe, would stop and soil God's own self by being joined to the creation in such a carnal manner. But if you stop and think about it, how did you enter this world? How were you born? We're all born in the very same messy way. And how and where else do we live but in a chaotic world filled with pain and disease and disappointment and sorrow and you name it, here in this reality is the tremendous significance 
of the incarnation as it boldly asserts that it is precisely this world, our world, that the Lord of glory came. And it's precisely this life, our life, that God has thoroughly thrust God's own self, reaching and grasping onto us and our lives and promising never to let go. At the very center of the incarnation stands this very unthinkable truth that God shed all glory and power to be with us and for us. It's the promise that in Jesus, God took on our lot and our life so that we might live in relationship with God now and forever. Because of the incarnation, we, encon- uh, we encounter a God who can sympathize with all that we will endure. The ups and the downs, the hopes and fears, the triumphs and tragedies that are all part of life in this world. Simply because God has experienced them firsthand in Jesus. Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here we discover a God who will not forsake us wayward creation but rather is determined to redeem it at all costs. Here we meet a God we can trust to accompany us wherever we go. The good news is that this carnal God understands us because God has been one of us. This is a God we can turn to with our distresses and our fears and our complaints without shame or fear or rejection. And it also shows the unimaginable lengths to which God went in order to redeem us. In response to all of our sin, all of humanity's failure, God doesn't respond by withdrawing. And thank God he doesn't overtake our rebellion with his divine power. Instead, the picture is of God who commits himself to us, taking on our lot in our life. In Jesus, we behold the amazing promise that God will go to any length to have a relationship with us, to know us, and to love us no matter what. That's what Christmas is about. It's what the world has been waiting for, this arrival of the Messiah. Now, the second implication of the incarnation that we need to know is coming from experiencing what I call an eloquent God. A God that communicates to us, one who's understandable. And in the beginning of the Gospel of John, John exposes one of the more troubling aspects of life in this world. And when he says this in John 1, verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. And we've probably all been in a place where we don't have to argue about this kind of statement. We've experienced it. We were hit with some form of tragedy or suffering or despair or illness or depression a major setback, disappointment, broken relationships, loss of a loved one. In those times, it can be very difficult, if not at times impossible, to perceive God at work in our lives, right? 
Anyone ever felt that way? Where we're just, what are you doing? It's at these times, more than ever, where we crave a tangible glimpse of God's presence and power. Yet it's often at these times where it feels as if God is distant or remote or silent. And so John's confession then rings true. No one's ever seen God. Thankfully, being it's only 18 verses into his book, this is not his final word as he communicates about the elusiveness of God. Instead, it serves as a necessary backdrop against which we can appreciate the clear promise that saturates his gospel as the verse goes on. It says this, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God as, and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him being God known. Here we find another aspect of the incarnation that we need to understand, and that is because we cannot perceive God on our own, God becomes tangible, physical, and visible in Jesus. So if the first implication we talked about has to do with God's ability to understand us in entering into our world. This second one involves God's commitment to be understandable to us so that we can understand God. God's decision to leave all of heaven's glory behind in order to come to us as one of us that we might both hear and see God's word of mercy and grace and find hope and faith and courage and unconditional love is at the very core of the incarnation. Now, John's confession that in Jesus, God comes to us most clearly and fully takes dramatic shape in his use of this Greek term logos, which is translated word to describe Jesus. The very first words of his gospel say this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. This language calls to mind the opening of Genesis and the creative power of God's speech. In verse 14, John presses this image to the limit, declaring that the very word of God became flesh. And so in this verse, John is asserting that this invisible God now becomes visible, taking on human flesh in order to speak a very clear and compelling word to all of us. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, the incarnation brings us the promise that now God has spoken of God's great love for the world most clearly, most reliably, most definitively in Jesus. That Jesus is the word of God made visible and understandable both in speech and in action. Now with that, let's just pause for a moment to remember those times where we experienced God communicating to us. It could be through a time where you're reading scripture. It could be through a time of prayer. It could be in a place of silence. You were listening and you heard God speak. It could be on the top of a mountain. You're, you're overwhelmed by the beauty of creation. 
It could even be God speaking to you through others. The truth is, none of those experiences can happen without the incarnation of Jesus occurring. The incarnation brings an eloquent, communicative God, one that we can understand. What a gift. Now, the third implication of the incarnation is that with it, we experience what I refer to as the vulnerability of God. It tells us that God joins humanity in the flesh and intervenes personally in human history. And in doing so, God becomes not only passionately involved in human affairs, but also extremely vulnerable. The greatest example of this being the cross, right, that awaits this child born in Bethlehem. In short, by becoming incarnate in Jesus, God becomes vulnerable to every aspect of human life, including going through everything from a literal childbirth to suffering and death and everything in between. And if you think about it, if the incarnation testifies to God's vulnerability as it's portrayed in Jesus, the Son, obedient unto death, it also shows God's vulnerability through its revelation that in Jesus we identify God as a loving parent. We've used this language before. Martin Luther regularly contended that Jesus reveals the fatherly heart of God. That in light of the Son who comes to die that we may live, the God of the heavens is revealed to be this loving parent, desperate for all of God's children to know and experience God's love. And if you think about this image, this is utterly amazing. Because in reality, there are very few people who are more vulnerable than parents. At the very birth of your child, parents become suddenly captive to fate and hostage to destiny. Because all the good that we desire for their children and all the evil and suffering we long for them never to experience becomes very clearly out of our control. We cannot do anything about that. And so for this reason, to confess in the incarnation, God is revealed to be this loving parent, again, witnesses to the extreme sacrifice God makes in sending Jesus. Remember, God is the loving parent who announced at Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And to watch then as this child who's absolutely loved by God is now mistreated and rejected and beaten and spat upon and crucified is almost impossible to imagine. Because of the incarnation, God purposely and intentionally puts God's own self as a loving parent at extreme risk for the sake of the entire world in all of humanity. And what's even more crazy is that when we become followers of Christ and we are baptized in the Spirit, God now is willing to risk it all for us. Because God now commits God's self to us because we are now God's children in Christ and are equally loved in the eyes of God. Romans 8 says it this way, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. 
The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now with that, I want you to think about uh, all the relationships that you have. And I want you to think about all the people that you know who God may be calling you to be more vulnerable with. Or maybe another way of coming at this is to think about why you aren't more vulnerable with your relationships. What's holding you back from risking for the sake of love like Jesus did for you? Again, none of these are easy. That's what makes us appreciate this season so much is when we remember what Christ has done for us. Now, as I said, there is so much more that I could talk about with regards to the incarnation and what it means for us. I don't have time to do that. As a way to help you, though, hopefully you received a piece of paper, a handout. Uh, I'm not going to use that today. It's more something for you if you would like to take home and dive into this a little more. It does some study, helps you dive into an amazing picture of both the divine nature of Christ and the humanity of Christ as it's seen in scripture that I think is fascinating to get a, a fuller picture of what the incarnation means. So hopefully that is helpful for you. But for now, um, with our time, I think it's important for us to ponder what the incarnation means for us right now in our day-to-day life. We see this language. What does it mean to be incarnational? How do we apply this? What is it that we can do to learn from this? And how do we um, allow this to be a part of our life? So I have a couple things as application points. The first one is the incarnation, I believe, invites us to be present. The incarnation is the most beautiful picture in my mind of God entering our present world no matter what is going on. There's zero pomp and circumstance for this. And God is not afraid of being present and God is not afraid of participating in life and all that life brings. Being present, to be clear, isn't just about physical presence, um, although it is part of it. Being present means you're also participating in whatever it is that's going on, no matter how messy it gets. And we've all been in situations where we've been having a conversation with someone who's literally right in front of us, but basically didn't hear a word we said. Just because they are physically there doesn't mean they're participating and engaged. From being born to dying on the cross and everything in between, Jesus was at every moment fully and faithfully present. And if you think about what he entered into for a moment, it's amazing. And so with that, I think it's important to take a moment to think of those times when you experienced someone coming alongside of you who remained faithfully present to you in a difficult time. And what a gift that was to be with you in those places. And I also want you to take a moment to ponder those areas in your life right now where you know you've kind of checked out, right? You've become disembodied or disengaged or distracted. It could be at work or in your marriage 
or with a friend. It could be in your studies, with your neighbors, with your community. It could be with your faith. It could be with yourself. Have you checked out? And so the invitation of being present is for us to think about this example of Jesus in the incarnation and to ask ourselves, what can we do to be more present in those areas, to enter into them instead of avoid them, to be present, to participate, to bring light? The second thing I think the incarnation invites us to is to be people who pursue and initiate relationships. And if you think of the incarnation, it invites us to embody God's absolutely determined desire for relationship with us, no matter what the cost. And to be clear, this isn't just about pursuing those people who we like or we're attracted to or we find interesting. Uh, It includes broken relationships, relationships with those you personally would much rather avoid, or even our enemies. This is about initiating and pursuing relationship with anyone and everyone out of love, just like Jesus did for all of humanity. So for us to ponder that for a moment, who are those in your life right now that you know you are avoiding relationally? And that could be intentional or unintentional. Do you have broken relationships that you need to act on? Do you have issues like busyness or selfishness or stereotypes or assumptions or attitudes that are getting in the way of you pursuing and initiating relationships with others. Hint, you do. (laughs) Relationships require communication. They require active listening. They require asking questions. They require curiosity willingness to learn and to be changed by the other, and so much more. And so through the incarnation of Jesus, it's now possible to have a relationship with God. We now have words. We have prayers and stories and examples and teachings. We have the Holy Spirit, all because God pursued and initiated a relationship with us. The word became flesh for us. So as you think of your relational sphere, how can you embody the realities of this incarnation into them? Now, one last one. As an application, I think the incarnation invites us to be vulnerable. You're all like, no, don't say vulnerable. Don't say vulnerable. It does. That's the picture. There's nothing that can compare to the risk that God took on our behalf through the incarnation of Jesus. It's the only complete picture of what it means to be vulnerable. And I just came up with a short list of what this looks like for God to be vulnerable through the incarnation. For example, the word became flesh. Just a couple of them. Just a couple of them. The word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. The one who was without sin became sin. 
Spirit became matter. Eternity entered time. The independent became dependent. The almighty became weak. The love became the hated. The exalted was humbled. Glory was subjected to shame. Fame turned into obscurity. From inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief. From a throne to a cross, from a ruler to being ruled, from power to weakness, and more. That's a description of vulnerability. Philippians puts it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The phrase, made himself nothing, is this Greek word, kenao, And it means literally to empty oneself, to deprive of force, uh, to render vain, useless, and of no effect. Talk about vulnerability and risk. The God of the universe, through the incarnation of Jesus, emptied himself, made himself nothing, and humbled himself in every way. From the absolute crazy, messy, earthy, dirty way God entered into humanity as a baby born, in the middle of nowhere, in a filthy manger with absolutely nothing. All the way through his life where he now had to experience weariness and hunger and need for sleep and thirst and sweat and temptation and tears and and lack of knowledge and physical pain and death, as well as the full range of human emotions including joy and sorrow and love and compassion and weeping and astonishment and anger and loneliness. And that's not it. God, through the incarnation, took on utter risk and vulnerability all the way to the cross to make it so that we could all experience unconditional love of God. It's the absolute opposite of our world and our culture here in Seattle. But it's the invitation before us to be men and women who incarnate, who live out our words and our actions, to bring life into them, to live out what it is to be in a relationship with Christ. And if you think about it, of all relationships, The only way to have real ones, to to have transformative relationships, it cannot happen without risk and vulnerability involved. And as we've heard, there's, there's risk in being present. There's risk in pursuing relationship. And being vulnerable is super humbling. And if we aren't willing to do so, we're going to miss out on the abundant life that this incarnational Jesus came to give us all. So with that, I want to take a moment for you to think about the relationships you have in your life and to take a moment to ponder how um, you are being called to risk or to be vulnerable in those. Maybe the risk is simply in 
an initiation of some sort. Or maybe being vulnerable is going to come by saying, you're sorry, or I love you, no matter what. Or maybe the risk will come by just showing up, or speaking up, or speaking out. Or maybe being vulnerable will be about sharing one of your own struggles, or by investing time and energy or finances. And it can come simply by asking questions or showing interest. This is what's amazing about all three of these. They're all very difficult and very easy, right? We know how to be vulnerable. We know how to pursue and initiate relationships. We know how to be present. That doesn't mean we want to do it. It's both difficult and easy for us to do. And so the question, again, is how do we respond to the invitation that it is in the Incarnation? As we close, um, I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. And as they do, uh, I would like you to have a little more space just to ponder all of this. I know there's a lot of application points. So the band's going to come up. They're going to play on their own for a little bit, just allow you some space to think, to ponder. Um, Eventually, Brian will invite us to stand and to join in a song of response. Um, But before we do that, I want us again to hold the picture, if we can, of the holy God of the universe choosing to enter our world, to be present with us, becoming flesh. And I want you to think about the waiting involved in doing so. I want you to think about the gathering that occurred as a result. And I would like you to picture God giving us his voice in actions to understand as embodied in Jesus and his willingness to become vulnerable, to risk everything, to initiate and pursue a relationship with us all. Because that is what we are presented with. That's what we are asked to respond to. That's what we're invited to incarnate and live out in our day-to-day life as well. So with that, I'm going to close this in prayer. The worship team will give us some space to wrestle and ponder, and then we'll join together as a song of response. Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, whenever I think about this in detail, I'm overwhelmed I want to give you great praise for the incredible love that you have shown to me and to us in the incarnation of Jesus. It's uh, mind-blowing to think of your love and how you went and made it manifest in action through this divine virgin birth of this helpless baby so long ago that has transformed our world and our lives. We're humbled at the lengths that you are willing to go to show your love for us. And we're so thankful for the promise that in Jesus Christ, in you, the God of the universe, you have come to be with us and for us, faithfully present right now and forever. God, help us as your children. God, help us as your church to be more like Jesus 
in the way we are present with others, in the way we initiate and pursue relationships, and in the way that we are willing to be vulnerable for the sake of love. We pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.